Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com, and it features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on Music Live Radio, we feature part two of the interview with Ron Schock. He is a comedian with one hell of a backstory. His career path includes priest in training, chain gang member, attempted jewel thief and subsequent guest at a maximum security penitentiary, computer programmer in the U.S. Army, and vice president of a Fortune 500 company. At age 40, he had an epiphany and became a stand-up comedian. We talk with Ron about his life, love of music, job as a concert financier for the Australian Odyssey Festival, an affair he had with one of James Brown's backup singers, and his experience as an opening act for Ringo Starr. Part 2 of the episode called Shock. But first, let's hear another clip of his comedy, this one entitled Newspaper Stories. lot of my stuff out of newspapers that's the easiest way to write jokes is you know read a paper uh it's in miami reading the herald a, a guy got killed by a duck <laughs> he got killed by a duck you know the number of people in all of history that have been killed by a duck is, is real small but here's how this guy did he was on a jet ski coming down a water watch and here comes this duck flying low over the water. Now, everybody in here has seen a duck fly low over the water. And when you do, that duck is bringing it, Jim. His neck's all out. It, it ain't that duck strut you see way up high. It, it ain't none of this shit. No, it's... You never see them fly that fast. Some kind of duck rush. It's like crystal meth for ducks. <laughs> Here comes the duck. Quack, 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 boom. Hits him right between the eyes. Kills him and the duck instantaneously. My very first thought when I read this was, you know... I always thought we'd die on the day we're supposed to die. And if that's so, how many ways did God miss that guy that day before he got down to the duck option? <laughs> Drug drivers are swerving. Bullet would have hit him, but he sneezes. Finally, God has to say, Mr. Duck, I'm really sorry about this. But you're going to have to go aflack this fella here. Now you got feathers and brain matter. Then my next thought was, just so you know how my mind works, was, 
you know, maybe I'm looking at it wrong. Maybe the guy died because it was the duck's day to go. <laughs> did, did anybody yell, Duck! <laughs> they both go, what? Boom, man. <laughs> I wanted to find something to do with my gift that didn't involve just the making of money and, and telling of lies uh, in order to make the money. But I didn't know what it was. And uh, when I tell it on stage, I, uh, you know, it's like it all happened in that nine days from the time I met Hayden Rourke to the time I went on stage. But it didn't. It led up to that. I, you know, I said, show me a sign. I mean, I think that's the words I use. And while that sounds like something, you know, in a, in a song, I mean, I really didn't mean it. You know, I didn't know, but I know there's something for me and I'm willing to, you know, as the song goes, I'm willing. Mm -hmm. Uh, just show me a sign. Give me some weed, whites and wine (laughs) (laughs) and I'll be moving. And, uh, uh, so when, I, I decided, you know, I, I just sat in my den for about a year and a half and, and reread some of my philosophy books and just tried to clear my mind of all the bullshit that was in it. And so I'd be open and receptive when, whenever it, whatever it was showed up, I was confident that it would because I think that's how the universe works. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, well, you know, I'll go to college. I've never been to college. And I'll, you know, my wife works. She made good money. Uh, I had some money saved up, blah, blah, blah. I'll go to school. Just take some courses. So I take introduction to theater, study of revolution, and uh, senior le- level logic. I didn't do anything about theater. Hayden Rourke shows up. One day at my class, he is a friend of the professors. And on that day, we had to do something that we wrote. It could be a song. It could be a snippet from a play. It could be a poem. It could be a speech. It could be anything. And it was only like a minute, minute and a half, something like that. Just something that you wrote and performed. So I did a little skit on how I walk like a duck with my feet out, and uh, that was it. It's just silly. And after class, Hayden Rourke, you know, snatches me as I'm going out and says, you know, what are you doing in college, you know, at your age? And I tell him, blah, 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 corporate world, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. He goes, well, you you have a natural gift for comedy. He said, you ought to be a stand-up comic. And never ever, ever, ever occurred to me. Never been to a comedy club. And I go, okay, I do that. And he says, you know, the comedy workshop, they have amateur night. And I go down there and I've said this a hundred times. I don't know if I've ever said it in in an interview, but I went into a comedy club that was on Tuesday of one week. He tells me that the next Thursday, I go and no, he tells me that on a Thursday and the next Tuesday, I go to a comedy club. There's like 15 people in there. And Tuesday night, 
And it was like a light shone on me and said, this is what you're supposed to do. And on Sunday, I went up on amateur night and bombed (laughs) horribly, horribly. A fight breaks out in the, uh, the showroom among the comics who crashes into the tables. That's my introduction. And from that day on, I've done nothing but stand-up comedy. You're like, finally, I found my people. I found my people. (laughs) And in a way, yeah. But I knew when I walked into the club, I I mean, when I say a light shone on me, and I know everybody thinks I'm just bullshitting, but that's what it felt like. And I knew at that point, and I never had any doubts. I used to tell people, I'm going to be on The Tonight Show. Shit, I couldn't even tell a joke yet. (laughs) But I knew it was what I was supposed to do. I knew, and I knew I was going to be successful at it. And it took me six months to get a laugh. I didn't get a laugh fucking one. I went up five times a week and didn't get a laugh fucking one. And had no doubt. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going away. I can do this. And I can. You know? So it was basically from that first night, did you already kind of know, well, that was what my calling is? Uh, what was it that really drew you into it? Just like I said, it was like a light shone on me. Uh-huh. Uh, I didn't. When I ask for a sign, it's just not a, a, a figure of speech. I mean, I really meant it. And I also really meant that if someone shows me this, if the universe shows me a sign, I will have the courage to follow it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll do it. And I don't know what it is. But when I walked into there, I knew at that time, Dan, uh, and there's there wasn't anything that could have happened that would have discouraged me. Not a one. Mm-hmm. I knew. I knew it in the, the my heart of hearts and in my soul of souls. I knew it that night. I told my wife that night, I'm going to be a stand-up comic. Mm-hmm. She thought I was going through a midlife crisis, <laughs> you know, but I wasn't. Yeah. I knew. How I knew, I don't know. Um, I know you had a lot of conversations with Bill Hicks about spirituality. What is the basis for your spirituality? Let me think about it for a second, how I want to approach this. Okay. Bud Mosier got me to read the Gospel of Matthew in Greek. In reading it in Greek, it takes upon a new meaning, especially the Sermon on the Mount. And of the Sermon on the Mount, especially the Lord's Prayer, where the preview to the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, if you're going to pray, do not be like the hypocrites who like to pray in public so that men will see them, and I tell you, they have their reward. But if you have to pray, he's talked about before that obviously God knows what you want or need. I mean, what kind of God would be ignorant? (laughs) (laughs) You know, he doesn't have to, or it doesn't have to be told. And he said, go in your closet, uh, a private place is how that would be more aptly translated a private place where you won't be bothered and go over this 
And the Lord's Prayer, which in English is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, etc., etc., right? That's in English. Well, that's Mm. not what it says in Greek. Mm. The word Father comes from a word that, remember, back in those days, a word had many different meanings depending on the context of the sentence in which it was being used. (coughs) It's only modern times have we gotten uh, an abundance of words. The word Father should be more aptly translated as source. A father puts a humanoid figure on it. Source is different. Which art in heaven. Heaven does not mean a place. It means expanding everywhere. That's what the word fucking means. (laughs) So now it's our source who's expanding everywhere. We think hallowed means holy. It doesn't. It means wholeness. W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S. Wholeness is, and it says, hallowed be thy name. They didn't have names then. They had character of Peter the fisherman, Matthew the tax collector, Jesus the Christ. It was character of. That's what your name was. It described you. What is your character? Mm -hmm. Wholeness is your character. So now it's our source, which are everywhere and everything. Wholeness is the character. Uh, back to English. I can't have, have trouble remembering it in English. <laughs> Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, earth, meaning worldly things. The, the, the power of God is in everything. It's not just... It's not just expanding everywhere. It's in every single thing, and therefore it is in you, mm-hmm. you know. And by doing what you were created to do, everything you need is going to be provided. You just do that. You don't worry about the other things. You used to talk about that a lot, Jesus Christ. You don't worry about that. Do the right thing, and you'll be taken care of, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but not if you doubt it or not if you don't do it. Mm. You have to do these things. And then and do them knowing that it's going to be okay. And after thinking about that, pretty much every day since 1973, uh, I would say, yeah, that would be the foundation of it right there. And I talked to, I, I've given the whole sermon, and so to speak, of, mm-hmm. uh, on this to probably... Ten people ever, and uh, only one got it. That mm. was Bill. Mm. He was the only one that came back and asked the right questions and went. Because, uh, see, Bill, he knew he was created for something. He knew he was created for comedy. You know, people say, in it a tragic he died so young? I said, well, let me ask you this. <laughs> Supposing God, in some kind of form, came to you before you were born and said, here's the deal. I'm going to have you born into a wealthy, supportive family who will support you in anything you do. You will know from get-go exactly what it is that you want to do with your life. You will be better than anybody has ever been at doing it. You will have the respect of your peers and the adulation 
of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. You will be around your greatest group of friends for your entire life. You will always have great friends around you, but you're going to die at 33. That'd be a pretty good deal. That's not too bad. That's not too bad, is it? (laughs) You know what I mean? You know, so yes, it was a tragedy that he died at age 33, but it was a blessing he got that far. (laughs) (laughs) You know, aren't you glad he didn't die at 23? Yeah, exactly. Well, (laughs) exactly. I I like to make a point of uh, some of the greatest rock stars of all time died at 27. You know, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin. Kurt Cobain, you can, the list can go on and on. And uh, to get farther than that. Is, yeah, there you go. It's a blessing. <laughs> there you go. And look what they left us. You know, yeah. I mean, Janis Joplin, as long as there are people who listen to the blues, there will be Janis Joplin will be alive. Mm-hmm. As long as people study or listen to the late 20th century American humor, Bill Hicks will be remembered. Yeah. You know, and uh, so... It depends on how you look at it. You know, I don't think of death as an ending other than it's an ending of one phase of an eternal life. Mm-hmm. You know, I, these are the beliefs that I've come to believe and not just because someone told me, because I thought about him. And I mean, I thought about him every fucking day for decades. And uh, I have questioned myself coming at him from... And since I did this, since that, you know, since I Mm -hmm. did this, I have never wanted and things have always been taken care of. Mm -hmm. When I was taking care of Ellen for those years, I never asked anyone to help me. I knew it was coming and it did. Uh It came from all over the world. Mm -hmm. You know, people heard about what I was doing and they sent me money. Mm-hmm. You know, Elaine Boozer sent me dog food, mm-hmm. you know, and I never asked them. They just did it because I was doing the right thing. You know, I had to take care of her. Nobody else was going to. Mm-hmm. I could either put her in an institution and walk away, but I couldn't live with myself if I did that. Yeah, that would have been hard. You know, and so I did the right thing for the right reason. Lo and behold, I got taken care of, mm-hmm. you know. Either there's something to what I believe, or I have been the luckiest motherfucker <laughs> ever. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, Either geez, way, it works out. <laughs> it, it worked out well for me. You know, I I didn't get rich and famous, but I make a living doing what I love, and there's not all that many people in the world that can say that. I, I'd say less than ten percent. Yeah, less than ten percent. Ten percent, probably. Well, maybe it's less. I don't know. Shit. <laughs> it's probably 1% if that much. Yeah. True. There's a lot of people, brother. There is a lot of people. And I forget I live in the uh, Thoreau said, in you the know, Bay most Area. men <laughs> live lives of quiet desperation. Yeah. That's a great quote. Yeah. Well, it's true. You so just I, have to have, talk to enough people. Me, like you said, you live in the Bay Area. Yeah. You, you know too many good people who are living full and enriching lives. But there are another. 20 million out here you don't know they were leading a, lives of quiet desperation. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yes. Now I want to hit you up with another question that I like to ask everybody, and this kind of has a spiritual component, at least in my opinion, but what does music mean to you? 
Well, it's definitely part of my life. If you come to my house and it's just me there, more than likely the music's on. Either the music's on and we're rocking and rolling, or it's real quiet. There's nothing on, you know. Yeah. Uh, it allows me to escape. I can always get remotivated, <laughs> you know, by playing some rock and roll or some blues and cranking it up. Get a little buzz on. You like to say I'm rock and roll. It. You like to say that phrase rock and roll a lot. Yeah. Where well, I it? like rock and roll a lot. So that's what it is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's all rock and roll to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's uh, my catchphrase. It's how I sign my letters, mm-hmm. my emails, yeah. rock and roll, Ron. Rock and roll. You mentioned Keith Richards was a hero of yours. Can you expand on that? Because he, they all did. In reading his book, it's confirming what I always knew about the Stones. They did what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. They did it how they wanted to do it, just like the Beatles did. Yeah. You know, they, 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 they. There was no mold, you know, and and so. And and he has lived the life of an outlaw and flaunted it to a degree and gotten away with it and and uh, now is a pretty mellow older man, you know he's not wild anymore, cleaned up. <laughs> but Jesus Christ, he had his fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's amazing. You've run into lots of interesting characters. And in fact, you were on tour with Ringo Starr. Is that correct? You opened up. No, around? that is not true. No, oh. I opened for him in Las Vegas. Oh, okay. A couple of shows at uh, Caesar's Palace. Uh, I have become. I can't say that I'm friends, but I can get him on the phone. Yeah. And you know, and I took my wife to see him down in Prim, Nevada, which is like 40 miles from Las Vegas. He was playing down there at one of the big casinos. And he called me and said, you know, I'm, I'm down here in Prim. Why don't you come on down? Mm-hmm. And Rhonda had heard me talk about, you know, I'm friends with Ringo Starr working with him. But, you know, yeah, she yeah. knew all these other stories about me, and they She's all like, turned out to be true. And, yeah, yeah. But still, it is a beetle, you <laughs> know what beetle, I mean? yeah, exactly. And so <laughs> we are actually going to see Chris Bliss that night, we're driving to see Chris Bliss's show at the Suncoast in Vegas when Ringo calls me. And I, after I hang up, I said, baby, we're not going to go see Chris. We're going to go see Ringo Starr. So that was him on the phone. Yeah. She goes, oh, really? And we get down there. And, of course, they're waiting for me. They got backstage passes. And, you know, Ringo Starr comes running down the hall. And, <laughs> you know, to shake my hand. And, you know, my wife's eyes are like this. Have you seen that picture I post every now and then? Of I did. Be heard, Ringo. And she got a, 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 a there. If you ever wonder what an ear to ear grin looks yep. like, well, my wife's got one. Yeah, exactly. And uh, <laughs> so, and it turns out that Ringo's video, but videographer, what's the word? The guy that takes all the film. Videographer. I don't know. Yeah. Well, is Brent Carpenter. Brent Carpenter is a real good friend, and I met him when he edited my Showtime special. As I, because I was in the editing booth with him, you know what I mean. And you see, mm-hmm. you get up there and watch all the cuts and everything. And we started conversation. Found we both like old, you know, not old, but sports cars. Mm-hmm. Most of them from years gone by. 
uh, and we like pinball. And uh, we became real good friends. He was the, I don't know what we called him, general manager when I had my one-man show there in L.A. for so long. Uh, when we got the money to do the show, I gave it to Brent. I told him, I said, you know, I want your signature on there because I trust you with this money much more yeah, so yeah. than I do me. I'll be foolish <laughs> with it. And uh, he went to work for Ringo Starr. And he uh, he calls me up and he goes, uh, turns out, he said, uh, we have a mutual friend. I said, oh, yeah, who's that? He said, Ringo Starr. He said, tell you the truth, Ron, when you told me you were friends with him, I didn't really know for sure what you meant. He said, I mentioned your name to Ringo. He said, I can't get him to shut up about you. <laughs> I said, well, cool. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. You know? And he's been very, very, uh, when when I went to see him in Prim, my wife's with me. And I will say about Rhonda, she is she is still amazed by her husband. That's so nice. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, you yeah. know, it, it, That's excellent. Yeah, really. Uh-huh. It seriously is. She she really likes me and is impressed by me and thinks the world of me. But we go to this show, and the he does a song, and then he says, ladies and gentlemen, there's a couple of guests in the audience tonight that I'd like for you to meet. In my opinion, the greatest American comic, Ron Shock, and puts the spotlight on me and Rhonda. <laughs> I'm up waving in the crowd. <laughs> Boy, you're talking about putting your wife in the box. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the grin. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was just, you know, luck of the draw. I saw a Showtime yeah. special of mine and really liked it. And he called me at home. I, I, no, if you've ever heard me tell that story, I wouldn't believe it was him. It's uh-huh. Ringo Starr. No, it's not. <laughs> you know, yes, it is. Well, no, it's not. You're one of my comic friends. <laughs> Thanks you for playing the prank. Who is this really? Yeah, yeah, who is this really? <laughs> it takes a while for him to convince me that I, matter of fact, I get his telephone number. He's at his agents, and I said, I'll call you back. And I called Rick Messina, my agent, and said, Rick, find out who does Ringo Starr. And- <laughs> What's the telephone number? Oh, shit. I got a phone call I got to make. <laughs> Golly, Mr. Starr, I'm, I'm really sorry. <laughs> but Beatles just don't call me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, that guy doesn't travel with light company either. I was just checking out his the lineup, I think, in that 2008 show, and he's got Billy Squire, Edgar Winters. He's got a bunch of other yes. you know, really badass musicians. Yes. <laughs> and I think that was the concert that I saw down in Prim because uh-huh, yeah. Edgar Winters was there. Yeah. No, Johnny was there. No, Edgar was there. Edgar yeah. was there. Billy Squire was there. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I think that was the one. <laughs> I think Squire was there. Rhonda would know. She can remember everything. She knows all that. Oh, she remembers stuff. everything. That's good because I remember absolutely nothing. Oh, you remember enough. <laughs> I remember my act and I can find the next gig and find the way back home. Let's get a little bit into your uh, politics. It says that you are as close to a libertarian as, I mean, I guess that's what you would identify with closest as a libertarian. Yeah, I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm a socialist. Uh, which isn't allowed uh, in America. Uh, I'm I'm to the left of Fidel Castro. Libertarians, 
they've got some good ideas, but they also got, you know, they, they border on anarchy. Which is hard to uh, operate in an environment. Yeah, anarchy is not going to fucking no. work, folks. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as fun as it sounds, <laughs> it would be, it'd be a blast for a couple of months. Yeah, for but, a couple uh, of months the Then, you know, we get around to, you know, how we're going to get the food here type of deal, <laughs> you yeah. know. And the libertarians want, you know, that's this idea of big government and some kind of boogeyman is is ridiculous. I mean, it's ridiculous. We're a big, huge, diverse country, and we are so interconnected, you know, in everything. You know, it's just things that there there has to be some some entity that can balance between the corporations and the people, between the rich and the poor, between making sure that we. You know, the rich can always get from A to B because they got a private jet. But the rest of us have to walk or ride a bike or drive a car. And to do that, we have to have roads and we have to have signals and blah, 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 blah. The libertarians, like some of the Tea Parties, they want to do with way too many of the regulatory agency. It's this thing going on right now. Do away with the EPA. And I want to point out that the <laughs> Cuyahoga River in Cleveland caught on fucking fire yeah. before a river, a river <laughs> caught on fire. And that was the impetus to form the EPA. And rivers don't catch on fucking fire anymore. But if you yeah. do away with the EPA, I can goddamn rest assure you they will again, you know, because you let Cup capitalism go unfettered its natural instinct is to get the most profit for every item that is moved that's their natural instinct it doesn't necessarily make them bad but it means that they start they don't worry things about whether the river catches on fire because it's cheaper to dump those chemicals in the in there than to dispose of them in a safe way. Maximize their shareholder, you know, profit. Absolutely, yeah. you know, and same thing with the FDA. They want to do away with the FDA. Jesus Christ, how many cases of salmonella do they have to catch before you realize that if they weren't there... <laughs> you might be you, in trouble. Yeah. No shit. <laughs> yeah. No shit. You know, corporations, they say that, the right-wing court, I refuse to call it the Supreme Court, the right-wing court decided that corporations are people and therefore can spend as much fucking money in elections as they want to. Woo doggy. Do you think the corporations are are campaigning for stri- tighter restrictions on emissions or tighter restrictions on poisoning the water, or tighter restrictions on what they can fucking say in credit card applications? <laughs> no, they are not. <laughs> nope. <laughs> you know, fuck. <laughs> fuck. Let's do away with no more. Re- it's your regulation dinner costing this fucking job. <laughs> Idiots.
Yes, well, I wanted to ask you about your love of poker. What fascinates you with poker? I've always liked playing poker. My dad taught me how to play. And I, I ran a poker game when I was in high school. You know, I mean, I've always played. I played in the Army, uh, played in jail. I'm a good card player. I like cards. And uh, when I moved to Vegas in 1990, uh, I used to, when I'd come out there, I'd always play poker and, and pay for the trip or help pay for the trip, uh, you know, and then go to shows and everything. And so when I moved out there, I started uh, learning how to play Hold'em. I was a stud player. And it's provided a portion of my income since that time. You see, the best players are going to win. I mean, there's luck involved, but luck only involves that day. If you play well and make the proper decisions, you will win because it's a game of mathematics. Uh And uh, if you make bad decisions, regardless if you won big today by making a stupid decision and you hit a, you know, a nine to one long shot, you know, well, more power to you. Do it nine more times. You can lose eight of them. Yeah. Or nine of them. Do it ten more times, you're going to lose nine times. So, good hand, sir. Glad you made that call. Because mm-hmm. he'll make it again, and he'll make it again and again. And over the long <laughs> run, he's going to lose a lot of fucking money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so. And I like the camaraderie ship of a poker table. I like the conversations that go on around a poker table. I like the the ambiance. I like casinos. Mm-hmm. I like nice, fancy, well-run casinos. You know, it, it. if you play in a private game, you run the risk of being cheated. Uh-huh. You do. But not you, in the casino when they're no, watching everybody. They're watching everybody. <laughs> so they're, they're on your side. I believe I'm a good enough poker player that if I sit down five days a week, 52 weeks out of the year, at the end of the year, I'm going to have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I will not lose that money. I will make a lot of money. Yeah. Will I make it today? I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, over time, though. But I'm going to play the right way. I'm going to keep the odds in my favor, and math is math, and it never lies. You know? You know, if you're a... Is that why you're attracted to it? Because of the it never lies aspect? In a way. You know, but I mean, I've always played cards. I've always liked playing cards, and I've always liked playing cards for money. (laughs) And if you like playing cards for money for, oh, say, 40-somewhat years or so, 50 years, 55 years, uh, it's probably because you win a lot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. I used to be a hell of a double deck pinochle player, but I can't, I can't play anymore. I don't remember how the game's played. Yeah. You're also a animal lover, specifically dogs. Do you have any dog stories? There were several good stories that involved that big dog, Frisky. Uh, I was throwing papers, same, you know, the paper route, and uh, these people didn't pay, and so I quit throwing their paper. And they called. And they complained to my station manager that I wouldn't throw it. And he approaches me and he said, well, you got to go through that paper. So they haven't paid me and I'm not going to throw it until they pay me. You know, uh-huh. you know, I've already been through this with them. I told him I wasn't throwing their paper anymore. And because, you know, he was a college kid and he was given authority. Uh, you know, he says, no, you go do what I tell you. 
you know, and I said, well, you can tell me all day long, I'm not throwing the fucking paper. And he grabs me and he slams me up against the wall. He didn't notice this big battle-scarred monster that's always with me sitting there right by my <laughs> side when he grabs me. He know my I mean, I'm no sooner out of his hand. He slams me up against the wall. As soon as he releases me, Frisky hits him up here on the collarbone and bites him home so hard it breaks the collarbone. Oh, wow. And uh, back in those days, you know, when the police came out and they went, you know, you're lucky we don't arrest you. You're yeah. slamming a 12-year-old kid up against the wall. You're lucky the dog didn't kill you. You know, nowadays we'd be sued, but, yeah. you know, uh, it was always wonderful. I, I, I've <laughs> I've had two dogs bite cops. Uh, <laughs> oh. Only people they ever bit, bit was a cop. One of them, when I lived in Australia, I had a house that that sat on a cliff overlooking the ocean. The way you got to it, you had to come down this narrow, like, driveway that is bounded on both sides by an impenetrable hedge of thorns that goes up like 12 feet. So you've got to come down between these two hedges. You ain't going through that hedge, yeah. okay? And then you come into a big open space, and the house is on the other side of the open space, and I am up in the second floor where my office is, and I've got a deck that overlooks this space down there, and this is where my kids play in this space. Mm -hmm. It's bounded by a wall over here because the ocean's behind us and bound by these hedges. The only way you can get to our house is to come down this path. So I've got a German shepherd named Sheba who I keep her uh, on a long it wasn't a chain. It was like a leash, but she had control of that area, and she could watch the girls, but she wouldn't go all the way down after somebody. They had to come into here. So I am I know my girls are safe down there. And I'm in, I hear Sheba go off. And I look, and here comes two cops down the, the, the driveway between the, between the hedges. I go, way right there. And I'll come move the dog. I don't know what they want, you know, but I got nothing to hide or anything. You know, wait right there. I'll be right down. This guy said, oh, no, mate, I'm real good with dogs. He says, please don't get close to that dog. She's going to bite you. <laughs> and he goes, no, no, I'm real good. I said, listen, that dog is trained to take care of those kids. Wait until I get down there. And he reaches down and chomp, chomp. <laughs> God damn, buddy. Some people just don't <laughs> listen to directions, do they? A hundred-pound <laughs> German shepherd lunging at you, <laughs> snarling and growling with her, her teeth back, her ears laid back. I mean, there's, you know, full-tilt boogie. She's, I'm going to kill you. So is that a bite on the hand or leg, or where did he end up getting bit? Oh, he got bit in the hand. Yeah, yeah he sticks his hand yeah. down, and she took a piece out yeah. of it. The other time, really uh bizarre story my first marriage we were very poor for a while we were very poor and i hear somebody trying to get into my car and we live our house is the last house on the street but then there's this big parking lot and on the other side of that is a wall and on their side of that is a cemetery 
and right directly across the street from my house is a church that is the church of that cemetery, it would, mm-hmm. so to speak. And back, my car's parked in that parking lot, and there's a a newspaper bin. You remember how Boy Scouts used to put newspapers in bins? They'd come around and collect them and mm-hmm. raise money. That I've got a newspaper bin back there. And I hear somebody trying to get in my car, and I run out there, and I, I figure they've jumped in the the deal, <laughs> and I tell whoever it is to come out, and it's this big fucking bruiser. And uh, he gets down, but he's like 17 or 18 years old, and I'm an adult. And I just, you know, I just grab him and, come on, kid, <laughs> let's go. I don't have a phone. I got to take him across the street and, and call, because he's broken the window in my car. Nah. And I got to take him across the street this way, all the way through the parking lot, across the street to this, like, convenience store. He's got a pay phone. Well, we get in a fight. He jerks away from me, and I punch him real good, and a lot of blood, and he runs away. <laughs> And, but he's screaming, I'm going to, I'm going to bring my uncle, you know? <laughs> and so I go, now I've got a Belgium shepherd and she's chained up on the front porch and I go make the phone call to the police and I tell him what happened. And I said, he's run off and he's supposedly bringing people back. Mm-hmm. You know, I got my wife and kids over here. I don't have a phone, you know, get on out here and they get my address and come back. So I'm going back to my house. And here comes the carload of the uncles. Of uncles. And uh, and I've brought some mace with me. And uh, uh, they jump out of the car and they rush me and I'm spraying them with mace. (laughs) And the guy from the gas, it was a gas station convenience store, sees this all happen. He takes the handle out of a... uh, a jack, you know, those big, long roll jacks, sure, that yeah. real long handle. He's got the handle. He comes running across, swinging this thing over his head, plowing into this group of guys who have just, they've rushed me, and I've squirted them, and I've gone down, but they're so blinded, they're all kind of stumbling around and trying to, but they can't see, yeah. and he clears them out with the handle. About that time, the police screech to a halt in front of my house, and run up on the front porch. And we're over here fighting, and they run up on the front porch where Susie immediately bites one of them in the groin. Oh, no. (laughs) 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 So, uh, yeah, I had to bite people. That's a a good story. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, I've had dogs to admit people. I've always had big dogs. Because I've I've traveled and I got a wife at home. Yeah. I want her to be safe. I can't be there. Let's jump back to your comedy a bit and then um, kind of focus in on what you're doing now and what your new projects are. But briefly talk about maybe sum up your comedy career. I mean, it's a lot of stuff to talk about. But if you can do it in <laughs> no, a few minutes, nobody's ever heard of me. There's my comedy career. Nobody's oh, ever heard of me. No, but you've had appearances on The Tonight Show. You yeah, were yeah, yeah. One of the Texas Outlaws of Comedy. I've got, you know, accreditations, but nobody knows me. You know what I mean? I have a, a small cadre of hardcore fans out there, but I was never on a sitcom. I haven't been on TV in, since 96. 
Okay. You know, I mean, that's 15 years. Would you have ever wanted to sitcom? No. Yeah. No. No, I didn't get in this to do that. A lot of guys did, but I Uh didn't. You know, I want to be a stand-up comic. That's all I've wanted to be. You know how to make money. If you wanted to go back to just strictly making money, that's something that you've already done and been there, right? Done, and I don't want to get involved in that. I have started selling T-shirts. We made a great T-shirt for uh, You're Gonna Die Anyway, a routine of mine. It's a great shirt, Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, I make some money selling the shirts. It's a wonderful shirt, but... It's part of an overall plan. I want to go to Rick Messina and have him get me one more special. And I want that special to be called You're Going to Die Anyway. And I want to put a clip up on YouTube of maybe a really good seven or eight minute version of it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, once I can get people watching it and we're, my wife and I are planning this little assault on the internet, okay, yeah. when we put all these pieces together uh, to stir up some quote-unquote heat so I can take it to Rick and go, look, you know, we're, we've got an aging population, you know, hedonism is, <laughs> hedonism sells, <laughs> and uh, yeah. it, it's, it, you're going to die anyway. That routine appeals to young and old. You know, I mean, it's not age selective, you know, nobody knows. And so I want to, but I'm waiting until I've got all my ducks in a row because Rick will do one more thing for me. Uh You know what I mean? He really likes me, has always really liked me, has always wondered why I'm not a big star. You know, I turned down some roles that maybe could have made me famous, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been being a comic. I didn't want to do that. You know, and they, well, this role you can do, yeah, well, I don't want to do that. Well, when you're in the height, well, I wouldn't say the height of your career, but when you were actually doing Tonight Show episodes and whatnot, that's when you had to take care of Ellen, correct? Yeah. And you made a choice to take care of people that you knew as opposed to furthering your own career. I had no choice. I yeah. loved her. Yeah. You know, what you going to do? I mean, we, you know, we didn't have insurance. Mm-hmm. You know, they wanted me to put her in a nursing home. I, I can't do that. Yeah. Can't do that. <laughs> Couldn't I? Could never face myself in the mirror if I did that. You know, well, she she would have done the same thing for me. And so, you know, did it cost me something? I have no idea. It wasn't like we were beating down my fucking yeah, door yeah. anyway. You know, we had that one man show for. I can't remember. If it was nine months or a year. We, we had original six month lease, and then we did it some more. And then it, we did it down in Santa Monica Boulevard some more. But I think it may have been almost a total year run. Mm-hmm. And it was critically acclaimed, but very sparsely attended, you know. And I made a lot of mistakes in that. Had I played those cards right, it might have worked because I had a great concept. I put it in the wrong theater mm-hmm. uh, and everybody agreed with my reasoning when I sold them on the idea of this theater. Everybody agreed, and we were all wrong. But I was the really wrong one because it was my idea. And, <laughs> you know, so we need to do it here. And they went, oh, you're absolutely correct. I wish somebody had said, I don't know, Ron. <laughs> Let's think about it for a moment. <laughs> I still love what I do. You know, there's nothing that 
that I want to be doing other than this. I just want to do it bigger, you know. Yeah. I'd I'd like to before I die, I wouldn't mind getting the public's attention, you know, that I'm obviously not going to appeal to everybody, but I think there's plenty of people out there that I can. I don't want to play great, great, big, huge venues because they're not suited for my type of comedy. You know, it's hard to hear stories in an arena. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. And, and it has to be something, you know, conducive to do it. I played in a really cool little theater in Reno called the Pioneer Underground. It's mm. part of the Pioneer Center for the Performing Arts in, in downtown Reno. Beautiful little theater. Beautiful little theater. I wouldn't mind doing some filming in there. Just it plays so well. It's mm. about 190 seater, you oh, know, and for size. a television special, for that special, would be yeah. just really good, you know. But I would probably best do it in Texas, you know, because I want to have my crowd in there and my crowd, you know, the ones that I know I can fill a theater yeah. is Dallas, Fort Worth, uh-huh. Houston. You know, maybe San Antonio, but Dallas, Fort Worth, and Houston, they will come out yeah. by the hundreds to see me. Yeah, yeah. Not by the tens of thousands, but by the hundreds to pack whatever venue I want, and they're going to be my crowd. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to be my crowd. When I filmed Baggy Blues, it's Showtime one, we filmed it in Vegas, in Bally's, and it was a real good crowd. I could have done better on that, too. You know, I would, I'd married the music at the end and, and it still was good, but it wasn't as good as it could have been. Mm -hmm. You know, you see them, you know, you think you got the right idea and you put it all together. But when, you know, you only get one take, you know what I mean? You know, and it sounds real good. It sounds like this all going to work together in this sequence and, you know, begin with this and middle with this and with this. And then you see it and you go, fuck. (laughs) You know, we either had to do away with this or give it way much more time. But what we did was we tried to cram 12 minutes into eight and Mm -hmm. you can't do that. It takes a lot out of it. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) So some things of my lack of notoriety have definitely been my fault. You know, whether if I'd done them perfectly, would it make that big of a difference? I don't know. But I know damn well, good and well, I didn't do them perfectly. What's the best place for people to go learn more about you and check you out? Probably your website, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, Dan, probably. But it's just in, you know, an outline. You -hmm. know, it's got my credits and it's got a couple of short clips. You know, yes. I mean, it's as good as any. But YouTube is also good. You know, I've got some stuff out there, and I'm getting ready to put out a lot more. I've been setting side bits, you know, little clips of film we've got, which I'm waiting for. My Rhonda, my wife, quit a very high-paying job just recently, and uh, she's going to take over the doing the computer work and the internet. She's really good at everything she does. And your website is just www.ronshock.com? Yep, correct. that's it. Yep. 
Is there anything else that you'd like to mention to the audience? Yeah, get them to come out to the shows. Check me out. You know, go let's watch some of my YouTube stuff. You know, read what I write. You know, if you like it, tell your friends. If you don't like it, go away. Yeah, I have to say, I, I heard about you on the uh, Mark Marin podcast, the WTF. I think I mentioned that earlier. Yeah, you did. Uh, but I just want to tell everybody that I went out and I bought the, there's a package that you can get of all the Ron Shock stuff for a measly $75. And I don't know if that's the price anymore or whatever, if it's still available, but all of that stuff was just f- totally interesting. I mean, this guy is uh, a classic storyteller. That's why I invited him on the show, and I'm glad, you know, Ron, that you can make it. Oh, thank you very much. And uh, I wish you the best success, and thanks again for coming on the show, man. Well, thank you very much, you know, and I, I appreciate you plugging the C. I got five CDs out. You know, that's a lot of recorded material. It is. Yeah, it is. There's not all that many have ever written that many jokes, yeah, you yeah. know, or told that many stories. And I will say this. The one which is not the most popular one, but my favorite of all of those is still dog stories. Yeah, yeah. You know, because of the ham and cheese cheese story and the two dog stories. I just, some of my favorite pieces. <laughs> and I tell her real well on there. All right. You know, uh, one, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks again, man. And um, hopefully we'll ta- be talking to you again in the future. Oh, please. <laughs> This one's a John and Mary story from the uh, Chicago Tribune. John and Mary have been going together for five years. John decides to break it off, and he goes over to Mary's apartment, rides the elevator up, and she lets him in, and he tells her, Mary, Mary, five years, baby. Gosh, gosh, I've learned to hate your ass. Uh, Boy, what a mega bitch you've turned out to be. I... I can't believe I've stayed this long, Mary, but I, like the alcoholics say, have had a moment of clarity, and I am out of here. And John turns around and leaves. Mary, on the other hand, is so completely distraught by this sudden and unexpected turn of events that she cannot face the prospect of life without John, prick that he may be. Mary decides to kill herself. Runs across her front room, dives headfirst off her eighth floor balcony, and hits John. And he's coming out the front door, and it killed John, and not Mary. Unfucking believable. You talk about bad luck with women. John's up in heaven. They go, hey, John, John, come here, man. How'd you die? John goes, shit, I don't know. I'm walking out the door. This bitch falls out of the sky and kills me. The guy in heaven next to him goes, oh yeah, let me tell you about this damn duck. (laughs) Bada boom, bada bang. (laughs) That concludes part two of the interview with Ron Schock. 
Of course, you can check him out at his website, ronshock.com. He's got some great blogs. You can buy t-shirts. Check out all of his music. Check out that uh, $75 package for all of his CDs and includes DVDs as well. Thanks also to Kevin McLeod for the background music. You can check out more of his work at incompetech.com. I'm your host, Dan Sauter. Thanks for listening to Music Live Radio, and we'll catch you next time.